This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 20. The study of worship is indispensable for an understanding of the church and its ministry. One of the duties and privileges of the Christian church is that of providing for and maintaining the worship of God. The first order in the church's mission is worship. All other aspects of ministry are motivated by worship, and without worship, the church will die. It's with these words that 20th century Baptist theologian Franklin Segler opened his book entitled Christian Worship. And I think about these words often. They are a helpful reminder to me as a pastor, and I believe to us as a church, about the centrality of worship in our life together as a church. Every local healthy church has at its core a desire to be a worshiping community whose primary aim is to glorify God in every expression of its life together. From our practices of Bible reading and prayer to confessing sin and singing, from praise and preaching to communion and baptism, every element of worship that we observe, we also have with the great aim of glorifying God. Now, we didn't create any of this. Everything that we do together in our practice of worship, we see found in the sacred page of Scripture, seen in the lives of saints from long ago. Christian worship has its roots in ancient soil. Long before Sinai, with all of its bright and thunderous revelation that we've seen over the last few weeks, before the temple was constructed, even before the tabernacle was first lifted into the air, God's people worshipped. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed fellowship with God as they walked with him in the cool of the day. Their entire existence could be categorized as worship. After the fall of mankind, throughout the book of Genesis, we see people worshiping specifically through the building of altars. The first thing Noah did after setting his feet on dry earth was to reestablish the practice of worship on the earth. He built an altar and offered animals as a sacrifice. Moses tells us that Noah's worship was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Genesis chapter 8 verse 20. When God cut a covenant with Abraham and told him that through his seed, through his family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he built an altar as an act of worship. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Isaac, Abraham's beloved son, learned the practice of worship from his father. The very day of Abraham's testing of his faith including, included his son Isaac carrying 
the wood that would become the sacrifice on that fearful mountain. It was there on that mountain that the Lord provided a spotless lamb to die in the place of the promised son. And on that mountain, one day, eventually, the temple of God would stand and he would be worshiped for centuries. Years later, when Isaac was a grown man, the Lord appeared to him and promised, I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Isaac built an altar at that place and called it Beersheba. And there he called upon the name of the Lord. He worshiped. Abraham's wrestling grandson, Jacob, encountered God in a powerful dream one night as he made his bed on the dirt and used for his pillow a stone. While he slept, he saw a ladder descending from the sky and angels descending and ascending. At the top of this dreamy ladder stood the Lord himself who reiterated the promise that he'd made to his father and his father's father before him to be with him and to bless his life. When Jacob woke from that dream, he took that rocky pillow, uh, made an altar of it, anointed it with oil, and worshipped. He called that place Bethel. The stories of Adam and Eve, Noah, and the patriarchs include God revealing himself and people responding in worship. The book of Exodus is the story of a people who God redeemed in order that they might worship him alone. This was God's purpose in revealing himself to Moses. It was his purpose in performing uh, the ten plagues. It was his purpose in redeeming them from slavery. It was his purpose in giving them the ten words. And now as we move forward in the book of Exodus, there is not one chapter that passes that is not significantly tied to the practice of worship in a significant way. And so my prayer for the Trails Church is that as we push forward through the book of Exodus, that we would grow as a worshiping community. That we would be convinced that the first order in the church's mission is worship. In what ways are you growing as a worshiper of God? In what ways are you growing as a worshiper of God? Exodus 20, verses 22 through 26, revolves around an altar of worship. While these verses serve as the prologue to the book of the covenant, that's the second time you've heard that phrase, perhaps you've never studied the book of the covenant, all that means is Exodus chapters 21 through 23. Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. Before we get there, these verses hold a special place. Because here, before God gives a specific law for daily life to govern his people, he gives them instruction on the importance of worship. We hear an echo in this text of the much-needed reminder, we must worship the right God in the right way. We'll highlight three unique elements of worship found in our passage. God's people are first to worship by the word. Second, to worship at the altar. And second, to worship by 
a sacrifice. Would you stand with me as we read together God's holy and anointed, inerrant, infallible, now and forever perfect word. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you, and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first element of worship we discover in our passage is God instructing his people to worship by the word, verses 22 and 23. We left off last week with the Ten Commandments ringing in the, in the air, uh, the Israelites shaking in their sandals, and Moses walking into the dark cloud of God's presence. The people pled with Moses not to let God speak directly to them anymore, asked from now on that he would speak to Moses as the mediator between God and man, and then Moses would pass on the words of God to the people. Well, the first words God speaks to Moses to pass on to the people begin with the subject of worship. Verses 22 and 23 may have felt familiar to you as you read them, and that would be for good reason. Like we tell our children the same things again, and again, and again, so that they will not forget. Here, the father is saying to his children the same thing over and over, so that they will not forget. This is intentional repetition. God repeats truths. He's already spoken, either in Exodus 19 or 20. And the first truth is a reminder of how to worship. How to worship. Both the Ten Commandments and here the Book of Covenant begin in the same way with the declaration that God and God alone is worthy of worship. And because he is God, he is therefore to be obeyed. In the prologue to the Ten Commandments, you remember Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 was a little prologue before the first command is given. And there God declared, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There God roots his people in the redemption he had already provided and then lists one by one his commands. What that does, Exodus 21, is highlight the wonders of God in performing their salvation. Last week we looked at the wonders and the word of God. Well, here in the prologue to the book of the covenant, Verse 22 highlights the word. Verse 22, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Now, we all know they were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, but it wasn't the mountain that was important. What was important was that God was speaking, not from the top of the mountain, but from where? 
from heaven. So God is reminding his people, again, before he goes on, we're going to see a long list of laws he's about to give them. But before he speaks one of them, he roots them reminding what he has already done. He had revealed himself through words. God's reminded himself through wonders and words, showing that he alone is worthy to be worshipped. Now, I want you to just plant that thought uh, in your thoughts. God is teaching his people how to worship. We're going to look today specifically at one expression of that in verses 24 through 26. But I don't want you to miss how really every chapter to follow is somehow strongly connected to God teaching his people to worship. Both to worship him specifically, uh, fulfilling the, the first part of the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But also the second part, to love your neighbor as yourself. We'll see this all the way to chapter 40, how to worship. The next area of intentional repetition addresses how not to worship. Specifically, God once again forbids the use of any idols. Verse 23 is a summary of the first and second commandments in a single sentence. They'd already heard God say with his own voice, you shall have no other gods before me. And also, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. But here is another reminder of that same truth. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, refusing to be worshipped by any image. Why? Because no image in all of creation, nor the highest thought in any imagination, is worthy of embodying, of being used in the worship of the uncreated God. So God says, don't make gods of silver or gods of gold. That's what the Egyptians did. That's what the Canaanites have done. All the neighbors surrounding Israel worship their God through the creating of idols. The phrasing of this, instru- of this instruction struck me this week. You shall not make gods. Think about that phrase. You shall not make God's. You look like a really intelligent group of people. A people that would say it would seem really silly to worship something that you made, wouldn't you? Wouldn't we all say that? The uncreated God who was not made, but throughout all eternity who has been, tells his people not to worship any made thing. Not the making a God of anything. Why would God repeat these words about idolatry to his people? He's already told them once. Why say it again? Well, we have the advantage of knowing the rest of the story. We know that before they even leave Sinai, they will have broken the first two commandments. We know that the entire history of Israel throughout the Old Testament is one of forsaking the God who redeemed them and pursuing other gods, even worshiping those gods through the making of idols. God repeats himself because his people need reminding. And if we're honest, we know that you and I need reminding of the same things over and over again because our hearts are prone to forget. Our hearts are prone to wonder. And there's not one of us that doesn't need to hear this reminder this morning with fresh ears. 
What are you tempted to make a God in your life? What are you trusting in? Are you bowing down to a sin pattern? Or maybe chasing the mirage of materialism? Do you linger at the mirror of self-worship? Each of us feel the pull to place created things in the place that only God is worthy of. The Bible calls that sin. And underneath all of our sin struggle is a worship problem. We have a worship problem. And so here God's word instructs us not to worship any created thing, not a thing that we've made, but to worship the uncreated God, the right God, in the right way. The second element of worship we discover is for the Israelites to worship at the altar. The altars that I mentioned in the book of Genesis show that God's people had long been an altar-building people. Verses 24 to 26 describe some of the details of the kind of altar that God wants his people to build when they worship him. And I want to summarize, really, I think, all of the points of this text, but specifically here, of why it's in the Bible. The altar of worship and the act of worship conducted at the altar, God wants to be completely different than the worship of other man-made religions. The altars built are to be marked with three things. There's three features I want to present to you about these altars. First, they're marked by simplicity. Second, they're marked by purity. And third, and this is so remarkable, by the presence of God. First, let's look at simplicity. Verse 24 and 25 outline the kind of altars that the people of God should build. They seem similar to the ones we might imagine Noah and the patriarchs built as they worshiped God. Notice how these altars are just meant to be humble, basic, unimpressive, simple, just made of earth, or if you'd like, stack a couple of stones that you find in the field. Now, this is, again, one of the ways that the worship of Yahweh would stand in stark contrast to the worship of pagan gods. The Canaanites built fancy, elegant, artistic altars that were made of fine stones, cut and finished, sometimes being overlaid with gold and silver. Now, as we move forward into the time of the tabernacle and the temple, we're going to see plenty of gold. But for here, for now, in this moment of redemption, God tells us people, you don't need any of that. You don't need anything impressive. Just come to me as you are, the things that you find that I made. And this, doesn't this protect them from worshiping their worship, from being so proud of what they made for the Lord? No, the simplicity leads to a purity about it. And that's the second mark of this worship at the altar. It's distinguished by purity. Perhaps when we arrived at verse 26, which says, And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed. 
And you thought to yourself, wow, that's a strong place to end a passage. Well, I want to give you two reasons why this is in Scripture, what this means, why this is here. First, the priests of some pagan cults often worshipped in the nude. The worship of Yahweh would be marked by modesty. So the worship of pagan gods, nudity. The worship of Yahweh, modesty. Can I get an amen? <laughs> We're going to find in a few chapters, um, as we move into the, God's instruction on the tabernacle, even the priests are given in, in the private service of God, even these linen undergarments, just to completely cover them and, and shield them from the presence of God. Second, the law prohibits any sexual elements in the worship of Yahweh. It's prohibiting anything sexual happening as an expression of worship. Once more, the Canaanites practiced regularly temple prostitution as an expression of worship. They would pay temple prostitutes as an expression of worship in hopes to get the blessing of the gods. God here is saying, none of that. Don't you see how the false gods have false rules and create false worship? Just a few weeks ago, we stood at multiple places where this kind of stuff happened. People worshiping false gods in ways that he never mentioned. No, the corporate worship of God will not include any sexual elements, but will be distinguished by purity. And finally, the altar of worship was marked by presence. The very presence of God the promise of God that's packed into verse 24 is no small thing to hurry past. God promises, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Now later we will see, uh, we've seen this already, haven't we? In the cloud by day, in the pillar of fire by night, the presence of God among his people. We're about to see it. Uh, in the tabernacle where God's presence dwells in the midst of his people. But here he says, where the right God is worshipped in the right way, my presence will meet you. And I just, I want you to look closer. Notice this is his plan. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, God's doing this. God's plan was for the name above all names, the name that is worthy of all praise, to be reverenced and revered and adored and honored and worshipped. And where his name is rightly worshipped, he will come and spiritually bless his people by his presence. Now, as we reach the end of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we find in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, that the altars prescribed here would eventually be consolidated into one altar at one place in the temple where the presence of God would meet with his people. But a good and wise God gave this provision to meet with his people for the time being. Eventually, the altar would be constructed where God would meet with his people, where sacrifices would be offered, where God's presence would dwell among us. However, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus comes and fulfills even this. When he's meeting with the woman at the well, 
He teaches her. So she had a worship problem, didn't she? We know she was an adult, like a chronic adulteress. But Jesus knew her problem was a worship problem. So he says, what, what matters now that I'm here is not where worship happens, but how worship happens. Not at Gerizim, not at Zion, but in and through me. He says that God's looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. I don't have time to go into all of that right now, but what Jesus is saying is spirit and truth is an embodiment of who Jesus is. So worship happens now in and through him. The writer of Hebrews gets at this in chapter 13, verse 10, where he says, basically, Jesus is the fulfillment of the altar itself. We don't worship at, a, at a, any man-made thing. We worship at the altar of the new covenant, at the altar of the promises and purposes of God. But still, as I think about the instruction given about these ancient altars, I couldn't help but make the connection of these things that Christ taught us should also mark the worship of his people through the ages. Things like simplicity, where we don't become so self-proud of our worship, but know that any way that we worship is in light of God's revelation. And purity. We've seen already the importance of holiness as a church as we've walked through the book of Exodus, knowing that God's intent for us as worshipers of Jesus is to be a holy people. And then I thought about the presence of God meeting with us where Jesus Christ is rightly honored and worshiped. And haven't we known the presence of God week by week when we gather as his people, the people he's redeemed, to remember the wonders and the words of God? His presence is with us. His covenantal presence is here. The final element of worship that we discover in our passage is God instructing his people to worship through a sacrifice. Now, every detail about the altar that is listed is important. Its materials, its simplicity, the purity of the worship, But all these instructions about the altar point to the importance of what's happened on the altar. We've got to get this. All the details about the altar point to the significance of what happens on the altar. The word translated as altar comes from the Hebrew word for slaughter, zabach. That guttural sound was for you in the back. Slaughter, meaning that the altar was a place to make an actual sacrifice. There's an animal sacrifice in view here. And there are two types of sacrifices listed in this passage. Burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, Lord willing, we will deal more with these later in the spring. For now, I just want to briefly cover the significance of each of these two offerings. A burnt offering included bringing The whole animal, a bull, a sheep, doves, and burning the whole entire animal as an offering to God. These sacrifices were made to atone for sin or to make payment for sin. That's a burnt offering. A peace offering is where only the fat was burned and then the animal was cooked. Now, Uh, We were outside one evening this week, and we smelled the wonderful aroma of an animal being cooked. It wasn't at our house, but it did make us hungry. 
And that was what a peace offering was. And then you shared that animal with your family and your friends as an act of thanksgiving to God. That's what a peace offering, for the peace that you have with God, the right standing you have with him. So two different kinds of sacrifices are outlined, burnt offering, peace offering. Now, let's call a timeout and just step back for a minute and remember our bearings. Where are we in the great story of redemption? Exodus chapter 20. So what's just happened? Well, go back with me to Exodus 19. God's people had the courage to stand before him and say, all that you say, we will do. Everything that you say, God, we will do. Okay, that's 19 and 20. The 10 words are listed out, okay? You say you want to do everything I've commanded? Here's the stuff I'm telling you to do. And then God tells them about sacrifice. Why do you need sacrifice? Because God knew the hearts of these people would never obey his laws and commands. Do you see this? There's provision before their need. God made a way where sinful people could approach his holiness. And he does it through these sacrifices. These sacrifices meant to atone for sin. So why would God outline the need to sacrifice, to atone for sin, to celebrate right relationship? Because God knew their hearts. And there is provision before their need. So to begin this year, I'm trying to read the Bible in a different way than I have uh, I've ever done. I do want to read through the whole Bible this year. I'm hoping it doesn't take that long because I'm hoping to read each of the 66 books of the Bible um, in one sitting. Okay, and so um, I, I want to do that just to get a refresher overview of what each of these 66 books are saying. This week, I read the book of Leviticus. You probably didn't. <laughs> and if but maybe some of you did. But if you're looking to read the Bible that way, you shouldn't start there. You should start with Jude. Jude, you can do over a coffee break. Leviticus is going to take a while and a highlighter. One of the things that caught my attention was how many times the people are told to bring burnt offerings. Burnt offerings, the kind we just read about. And at the end of the instructions, again and again, is this. The priest shall make atonement for his sin, not for his own. You're going to bring your sacrifice to the priest. The priest will make atonement for that sin, and then the person that brings it will be forgiven. The phrase repeated. The priest shall make atonement for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. The priest shall make atonement for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. And the more I stacked up reading those words, I couldn't help but think of the priest that made atonement for my sin. And how much I've been forgiven. That's what's meant to happen when we think about these burnt offerings. I'm not under this Levitical law anymore. This has been fulfilled in Jesus. But I have a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. I couldn't read through these ancient provisions for worship without seeing how these shadows of provision have been replaced by the substance of Christ. And I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. You've got to see this. 
This would be a wonderful chapter for you to read and spend time meditating on this week. We will spend more time in this book and in this chapter in the weeks to come, actually. For now, I just want to read you a few verses from it to show you how the New Testament speaks of the sacrifice of Christ being better than the sacrifices of the law. The passage begins by recalling the burnt offerings that were made day by day in the temple. I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. We'll take a break. And then I want to read to you verses 19 through 25. So here's 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool to his feet. (laughs) That's great. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So here's the talk of burnt offerings and peace offerings. So why don't we still offer these things to God as his people? Here's the reason. Because the sacrifice of Jesus, the once for all sacrifice of Jesus, was the last offering God would ever require for sin. And through the sacrifice of Jesus, we are given peace with God. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice, bringing atonement and peace. And so what do we do with that? We're told, Hebrews 10, verse 19 now. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we've gathered together because we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ. We've gathered to worship God today through one mediator, through the finished blood of Jesus. But not all of us. Only those of us who are in Christ have this kind of confidence. If you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, you have zero confidence of standing before the holy God. So today we plead with you, repent of your sin. Trust in Christ so that there is atonement for your sin, so that you can have peace with God. In writing about the unique contribution of Exodus 20, 22 to 26, one of my favorite Old Testament theologians who went to the Lord, be with the Lord, a couple of years ago named Alec Matir, he wisely pointed out, Here, as always in the Bible, the word of grace, which is the altar and God meeting with his people, precedes the word of law, which are the judgments that are about to follow, chapters 21 to 23. Here, as always in the Bible, 
The word of grace precedes the word of law. We hear in this text a much-needed reminder. How are you growing as a worshiper of God? We must worship the right God in the right way. How is that? Well, we worship by the word of Christ. We worship at the altar of Christ. And we worship through the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. And with confidence, we draw near. As I thought about altars this week, I thought about an old prayer that is a poem from one of my favorite poets named George Herbert. Um, even the shape of this poem, how he, how he wrote it, is in the shape of an altar. And there's language borrowed from the text about um, whose parts are as thy hand did frame, no workman's tool hath touched. He, he's using language from Exodus chapter 20. And at the end, he points to the blessed sacrifice of Christ, saying, oh, let thy blessed sacrifice be mine and sanctify this altar. He's talking about the altar of his heart to be thine. He prays to God. Let me pray through it now. Would you bow your head? A broken altar, Lord, thy servant rears, made of a heart and cemented with tears, whose parts are as thy hand did frame, No workman's tool has touched the same. A heart alone is such a stone as nothing but thy power doth cut. Wherefore each part of my hard heart meets in this frame to praise thy name. That if I chance to hold my peace, these stones to praise thee may not cease. O let thy blessed sacrifice be mine. And sanctify this altar to be thine. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.